0: Hello, hello, hello. This is your host, Noah, and you are listening to episode four of Techs in the City, a wonderful podcast about all things production, lighting, things of that sort. To uh, kick it off here, let's get going with what we usually do first, which is the news. That is going to be the first order of business, so let's hop right into it. All right. So to start... I'm sure many of you know, USITT uh, is this weekend or started, uh, I think, I believe it started on the 19th, um, or it officially starts on the 20th and goes through the 23rd, takes place in Louisville, Kentucky. I've never actually been myself. Um, I know a lot of people who went during high school and a lot of people who went from UNLV. Um, It's more of a... At least the way I view it, it's kind of more of a student thing and a theater thing, kind of. Um, It's more so like... I mean, not necessarily. I mean, there's something for everybody, but I think it's definitely geared more towards helping students out more so than anyone else, USITT. Um, But apparently this year, they're on track to have a record attendance, which is good because the revenue... Basically goes to support, you know, theater, the arts, that kind of stuff. So it's kind of like a tourist revenue for like supporting theater and the arts and that kind of stuff. So that's always cool. They have tons of hands-on demos. Uh, They've got a lot of new tech stuff like LDI kind of stuff. Um, But there's also a lot of job opportunities. Like a lot of companies, production companies, maybe theater companies, seasons. They'll go there and try to hire techs or um whatever else you know they'll probably hire tech stage managers you know designers whatever they probably hold uh mock interviews or they interview people on the spot so they do that kind of stuff as well it's kind of they kind of cover all their bases in terms of like conventions um but definitely more geared towards the education side of things i would say but it's cool that uh, the revenue that from that supports you know theater and that kind of stuff um, and they have record attendance, so, uh, they should, uh, make a lot of money this year, and should go to, uh, Good Cause, supporting the industry that we all work in, that's always cool, uh, and if you're going to USITT, let me know how it was, or, well, let me know how it's going to be, rather, let me know how it is, uh, you know, just hit me up, let me know what's up, USITT, I've never been, I always go to LDI every year though, but that's only because I'm in Vegas, um. I have lots of fun at LDI, though. I have fun at conventions. I like to get my wardrobe from conventions as well. Sadly, last LDI, I didn't. I was working for most of it. Uh So I could only go on the last day. I really just wanted to check out the MA3. But I could only go on the last day. So I didn't really get any swag like at all this past LDI, which is kind of sad. But that's kind of how it is. I get more and more. I bet every year I'm probably going to be working on it more and more. Uh... Hopefully I'll be out in tour and miss it. I'd be totally down for that. But uh yeah, LDI is a good time. Maybe uh this year I'll see some people I know get a little meetup going, even though only thirteen people listen to this podcast technically, and they're all probably already know me personally, so <laughs> Alright, next next uh little news item I have here is uh something a different, not necessarily Lighting news in the traditional sense of, you know, a concert tour or a theater thing. But this one is actually about an art project called The Shoreline Project. And it takes over... I'm pretty sure it takes place over in the UK. Actually, no. Orange County. But they hired a UK-based company to do something with the lighting. And here's the thing. The lighting... It's not a lighting art project, necessarily. Like, it wasn't... Uh. The goal of it wasn't just to make something cool with light. It was more about uh, a concept, a performance art piece. Um, and here is uh, apparently, here let me just give you a quote from the, the designer here. The original concept for our performance was inspired by the desire to create a situation where our community would come together joyously. We hoped to create a shared memory of happiness on our much-cherished Pacific border and wanted a design of symbolic depth. Shelter and light bring us together. Seashells are the original mobile home. Mandalas are a symbol of completeness, hence the seashell mandala artwork that was used on the umbrellas, a form of shelter familiar to everyone. So that kind of gives you an idea of what it is. So it's, an um, it's umbrellas with mandalas on it, and there's a video that you can go look up. This is on LiveDesign.com, but I'm sure you could probably look it up on YouTube. It's called The Shoreline Project from Elizabeth Turk. She's the artist. But basically... Uh, people are on the beach with their umbrellas, and the umbrellas are illuminated, both the stock and the actual piece, so people can see the artwork on the umbrella. It's a really cool uh, idea, but apparently it was a, kind of a tricky thing to, to design, because the the lighting part anyways, because this is kind of cool with lighting, is a lot of stuff like this anyways, is you kind of have to just kind of do it. Like, there's not... Any lights that you can go buy, like, oh, let me go buy umbrella lights. No. You have to, like, engineer it. Um, that was my phone. <laughs> Ignore that. Uh, engineer it to to get it to work. Like, it has to be made from scratch, so you have to have a designer, which is a UK company, which is where the, uh, the United Kingdom company comes in. They're called Specials with a Z. But they're the ones that kind of engineered it, uh, went with her vision, uh, and illuminated the performance art piece and really gave it another element to it that it didn't have previously that really brings together the the umbrella and the light. So it's a cool, cool idea um, when it comes to that stuff. But in terms of, like, the trouble that they had with it, obviously, you know, lighting umbrellas or, or, you know, kind of jerry-rigging stuff to umbrellas to light it, um... It's kind of hard, but one of the main things is, and is it isn't interesting, and I can totally understand why it would be a problem, is balancing the light levels, making all of them the same across the board. Like, stuff that's not, like, one of them isn't too bright than the other one, because as a cohesive piece, you'll be able to really tell if, like, especially in the lighting aspect, if you'll be able to really tell, you know, if one of them's brighter than the other ones, because your, your eyes are going to be naturally drawn to the brighter thing. So it definitely important, uh, and it was a challenge to them was balancing out the light levels. Another thing was power; um, they were bower- battery powered. They needed to be battery powered, and they needed to be powered by batteries that you get at the convenience store. I think they went with double A's, but it needed to last three hour, three hours of battery life. So it had to be easy to get a hold of, and it had to last the right makeup time, to- uh, the right amount of time. But as I said, I believe they went with AA batteries. So that solved that problem. And like I said, UK-based company. And something I wanted to... It kind of brings up an interesting topic uh, in regards to lighting design um, is that it's not just like architectural lighting design or concert lighting design. Um, There's a lot of little stuff like this that kind of dips into the specialty of lighting. Um, and lighting professionals. And I think this is a good opportunity to talk about lighting professionals because it's such a new field. And interestingly, it's an experience-based field, too. So you don't have, like, academics telling you, you know, what's what necessarily. You have the laymen, the people out actually doing it, like a lighting professional. And these guys actually master the craft of lighting and actually attain an, a level of education about light that other people do not have. Which is an interesting thing because, especially coming at it from my angle, because I'm working my way up from the bottom. I'm not going to school or anything. I'm just, you know, doing the work. Um, And over time, you develop a true specialty and master over this thing called light. And I, I think it's really cool to see stuff like this because I like to see lighting being used in all aspects of, of stuff like of, of art because it is an art form. And I think it's really cool that you can have people that are lighting professionals come in and help and do stuff like this. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get across what I'm trying <laughs> trying to say. I'm not being I'm being kind of cryptic here. Uh, I just think it's cool that there's so much different aspects of of light and lighting design and and different things that you can do as a lighting designer. Uh, you know, other than the traditional architectural lighting design or theater lighting design or concert lighting design, like stuff like this. And I think it's really cool. And I think it's appropriate to acknowledge these guys as lighting professionals who do this kind of stuff and as a craft that is mastered, if that makes sense. I hope you get what I'm saying. Uh, it's just like it's just, uh, lighting is kind of a, a really niche thing. So I think it's cool that, you know, you have these guys that master this niche thing and actually... Um, can be a part of art projects like this and are needed. Like, they need a, a lighting professional to do this. They would not have been able to do it without a lighting professional. Um, so I think that's really cool to see out in the world, uh, you know, so many different ways that you can utilize light and utilize lighting professionals and, and stuff like that. And I think it's cool to see it being utilized in a, such a creative way. Uh, but, yeah, so that was called the Shoreline Project... From Elizabeth Turk Studios. There's a video of it that you can go watch. You can either watch it on LiveDesign.com, or I'm sure you can find it on YouTube, called the Shoreline Project, or Vimeo, or whatever. Uh, but yeah, so a cool, uh, cool little art project, uh, for you guys to hear and go check out, and uh, to inspire you, because I like being inspired, and watching other people do cool things with light is definitely inspiring. Uh, definitely. I definitely always like to look for for things to be inspired by. Mostly nature, because, again, light at the end of the day is just nature. So, uh, moving on to the next piece of news. I think I have another piece of news. Maybe I don't. (laughs) I don't think I do. I thought I had written down three things, but I guess I didn't. Shoreline, lighting professionals. I, I think the main thing I wanted to touch was talking about the lighting professionals, you know, and their contributions and that kind of stuff. But again, the shoreline project, Elizabeth Turk, go look it up. It's awesome. Light is art. Art is light. We're all having fun. All right, moving on. So the next thing I've got for you is not fixture of the week or news or anything, but rather a little bit of, I guess you could say, fun facts, or as I like to call, uh, or as I like to call it in this section, hazer history. So, hazer history. Now, I'm not going to go deep diving into like the full history of hazers, because honestly, I couldn't find much information on it. Yeah, I didn't really expect to, necessarily. But, hazer history. So, haze, if you don't know what it is, and to the uneducated person, or the ignorant person, haze, you'd probably call haze fog, or smoke. But it is neither of those things. It is a more subtle... Uh, opaque uh, haze that is used to uh, bring out the lighting elements, basically that you can see the beams of light, if you will. So that's a hazer. A fog machine is something that shoots out really thick, kind of ominous-looking clouds, and it's low, usually low-lying. So that's more for like theatrical effects, more so than you know the lighting aspect of it. So that's haze, but there's a lot of different kinds of hazers as well. So there's these things called there's. I've never heard this term myself, so I'm learning along with you. They're called crackers, or also known as oil crackers, and apparently they were developed in the 1960s, usually using a refined mineral oil as its fluid. Um, and you, it's either a spray pump or CO2 gas that. Uh, but it's mechanical, so a CO two pump or a manual pump uh, to get the haze out. I don't know. If, I don't know if that would be atomizing it technically, but that would that under a for an oil cracker, that's how you'd uh, get the fluid to atomize or turn into haze. But they and, and they use strictly refined, usually anyways, refined mineral oil. You can either use, like, refined mineral oil or water-based haze, water and oil-based haze, uh, usually is the case. Uh, and the difference is just what they're made out of, obviously. So, with these, them it's mechanical, so you don't have to warm up your haze or anything. Like, the one I have at work is an MDG atmosphere, and that takes maybe, like, 5-10 minutes to heat up before it starts producing haze, and that's a CO2- gas uh operated one Um, but that one atomizes it inside of the mechanism as opposed to being mechanical so you don't actually have to do anything for that one other than turn it on and heat it up and get it going to atomize it there's also aerosol canisters which is literally exactly what it sounds like there's like cans of haze you can get obviously that's not going to stay for very long it's not really useful but it is portable i suppose and then you have something called an ultrasonic hazer and these use a transducer submerged in a fluid reservoir um, to atomize the uh haze fluid and a transducer is just something that changes the form of energy into another form of energy if you were wondering i had to look that up but the reason that you would pick an ultrasonic one for example is they're promoted as less noisy so not that hazers are necessarily noisy. I think the fans are, are what would be the noisiest thing about it. But an ultrasonic hazer, if you wanted a really quiet hazer, you could go for an ultrasonic hazer. Spec that out. And then lastly, there's these things called phase machines. And literally all it is is a fog machine with a fan on it. Um, the only reason you'd really use that is cost-effective. A lot of this stuff is probably cost-effective it would probably dictate what kind of haze you're using. But a phase machine is a fog machine with a fan. So just, I guess, think of switch the H with an F and think of F for fan. And that would be a phase machine. And then as for fire detection, a lot of people wonder, like, okay, with all that haze, or they call it smoke. <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time someone's like, hey, man, uh, is, is this smoke water-based or, or whatever? It's haze, guys. It's haze. But yes, it's water-based. It won't screw up your throat. It's not smoke. So remember that next time you disappoint your lighting guy by telling him he can't use haze. But in terms of fire detection, I'm sure we've all been to shows that had to be shut down by the fire marshal. But basically, a lot of fire systems in buildings, the way they work is they'll have sensors or, or catchers or whatever you want to call it that catch particles. And usually uh haze particles are small enough to get past the sensor i think they're like 1 micrometer i'm not sure what the detect uh, detection rate is or like how big the particle has to be for it to be detected by the the uh the fire system but most like water based haze oil based haze hazers won't trip a fire system but sometimes they will and sometimes they might trigger something where the the doors need to be open to let smoke out it really just depends on the room Um, and how the room's set up and how the fire system and what kind of fire system it has uh, to determine whether or not you'd even have to worry about that. For example, at Broken Bowl, where I work, our MDG atmosphere uses a water-based haze fluid, and that does not trigger our smoke doors or our fire system or anything like that. So we can really just pump that thing. However, some guys come in with... uh, like Radiance hazers and stuff like that, which are usually okay as long as they don't really pump it up. And we usually... A lot of guys opt to just stick with our hazer, but if they want more haze, then we can use our hazer in addition to, like, one of their Radiance hazers or something like that. Uh, But, yeah, so it really just depends on the venue. So it's really just worth asking, or I'm sure someone will tell you, you know, from the venue, the house guy will be like, oh, hey, man, just so you know. Usually what I tell people is hey man uh our our hazer doesn't trip the uh trip the system but yours might so as long as you know basically if the fire system is triggered and the the smoke doors open we basically have to cut all haze until until it's done so i let them know if they're willing to run that risk most of the time they're like oh yeah we'll just use yours um but in the future just something to think about is fire detection when it comes to haze, because that can be a problem depending on the venue. I remember when I was out uh, with the National, I was, um, where was I? I think it was the Palladium, the Hollywood Palladium. It was either the first or second night. The first night went fine, but for some reason on the second night, the fire marshals were really, really being sticklers about the haze, and we had to like cut haze at some point during the show, or else we are going to have to shut down the show. It was an ordeal. I don't remember why, because... The first night was perfectly fine. Uh, but like I said, it can pose a problem. Definitely something to think about um, and to understand anyways when it comes to hazers and uh, fire detection systems. Uh, but here's some interesting little factoids. Historical use of hazers. Like, like uh, we're talking way back. We're talking Globe Theater, Shakespeare stuff. So the Globe Theater apparently in 1598... Between 1598 and 1613, they had smoke effects that they used. Um, I'm not sure what they were. I'm sure it was probably nitrogen or something or, or dry ice or something. I don't know if they had that back then, but I would imagine something like that. And then another one to note is 1934, hydrogen smoke was used at Adelaide Hall. And apparently it was so spectacular and people had never seen it before, so it really caused... A sensation people were really amazed by it Uh, those are the only two main historical notable historical use of haze at least in performances that i found but definitely interesting especially the globe theater one smoke effects in the globe theater back in the i think that's the 16th century (laughs) crazy crazy stuff but uh the more you know all right moving on to the next section we got here something a little bit different for you guys is I'm going to be making some book recommendations here. Two books specifically. Especially especially if you're just starting out as a newbie in the wonderful world of live entertainment technology. Um, now these books are specifically for lighting. Sorry to disappoint you. But the first one I will recommend to you I have not finished yet but I'm in the process, process of Because I really wanted, I really want to know my electricity stuff. I really want to be the guy on site who really knows his electricity. So I bought a book called Electricity for the Entertainment Electrician and Technician by Richard Kadena. You can probably get it online for like 30 bucks, shop around. It is a textbook, so it might be expensive. But, uh, I'm about halfway through it, and it's a lot of good information in here. Definitely worth picking up and, uh, reading especially if you want to really know your uh your electricity which is a very important thing to know because we use a lot of power and it can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing but definitely worth picking that up so that you can uh, really know your electricity stuff and be the guy that everyone can count on <laughs> i sound like i'm like having an ad for this book no but i'm serious it's just good good stuff get your learn on can never stop learning And then the next book here is called The Automated Lighting Programmer's Handbook by Brad Schiller, 3rd edition. This book I've finished in basically two days. Definitely a good read. Really good information. I always have this book on me at all times because um, it has a lot of good information for troubleshooting. And just really good basic programming fundamentals especially if you're you're someone who's kind of self-taught, it's good to have information like this because it, it's it's more uh, structured. Like, it gives you some really good habits you can get into about programming, what to think of when you're programming, how to prioritize things when you're programming. I mean, it goes in, into um, all the networking stuff and the more complicated stuff, which is one of the things I really want to learn because I, I constantly deal with networking, so I really try to... Uh, know my networking, because, you know, 95% of my job, depending on the show, is networking. So, really, really good for that, in RDM. Uh, but one of my favorite things about this book is he he gives you a lot of quotes from other lighting designers and programmers, and he gets a lot of input from industry professionals, which I find really valuable, because like I said, there's always someone who knows more than you, and I always want to pick people's brains in terms of programming, because I, I really want to develop a correct programming workflow. Like, I want to have solid programming. And I'm the kind of guy that I can develop bad habits, so I really want to do it the right way uh, the first time. So definitely recommend picking this book up. Either if you're new or you've been in the industry for 20 years, you've been programming lights, I guarantee you there's some information in this book that you would find helpful. Again, it's called The Automated Lighting Programmer's Handbook by Brad Schiller, 3rd edition. But I do want to read a little thing from the book here as well. You can hear me turning the pages. Because at the beginning, he puts a list of 10 things that a every lighting programmer should know. And I thought I would go through and uh, read them to you guys. Because it's... Uh, so some really good information. Now I won't read the whole thing. I'll kind of read the the name and kind of give you a little bit of the uh, the description here. So number one is understanding the fixtures. When starting a new rig, you should first find out as much as you can about the fixtures you will have download manuals, read up on the features and function of the lights. studies the DMX protocol and the map so you understand what happens to the fixture with different DMX values. A good understanding of how the fixture responds to DMX will aid in any programming. In addition, studying the different modes and options of the fixtures can result in optimal settings for your production. Now, one good real-life example of why understanding your fixtures would be a good idea is I'll use the Elation 6PAR, for example. 6PARs really don't like being on... A DMX chain with other unlike fixtures, and one time it was a corporate event and we were having a DMX problem and we ended up having to have the six pars on their own DMX line because they just were not playing well with others. Which is a common thing for Chinese fixtures and cheaper fixtures like that is some some of the cheaper fixtures really don't like sharing DMX with anything else. Uh, so definitely, just a good example of of how understanding your fixtures. Uh, and how they interact with each other in terms of DMX and that kind of stuff. Definitely, definitely good information to know on site. And number two, basic console operations. Of course, if you do not know much about your console, how can you be expected to program it? You do not need to be a full-fledged expert on every aspect of the desk, although it doesn't hurt. But at the very least, you must be able to patch, create queues, recall queues, and back up the data. Yeah, so don't go calling yourself a console operator if you barely know how to operate the console. (laughs) But yeah, so just basically know what you're doing. Know what you're doing or don't call yourself a programmer. (laughs) Next up, which kind of was also covered by number two, is patching and addressing. Once you have studied the fixtures and grasped the concepts of your console, it is essential that you know how to connect the two together. Properly patching and addressing the fixtures is a skill every programmer must possess. The more information you can provide to the crew about the patch, the better. Too often, I have seen productions where the programmer did not create a patch until he or she was on site, leaving everyone waiting around for the information. Now, I always like to pre-patch. Usually, uh, I'll have one of my buddies who's out on a gig or something. Sometimes he'll hit me up and be like, Hey, man, can you pre-patch this for me or pre-program this for me or whatever it is? Uh, that way, when they get to the job site, that's one less thing they have to worry about. and It's all done already. So definitely good to, you know, patch and do all the little stuff that you can do at home at home. Anything you can do at home that saves you time on the job site, you should do. And that is definitely one of them. Because you can, usually these companies have proprietary software like MA2 on PC, all that stuff. So I can go in, I can have a patch, I can put it on a USB drive, I can show up to the job site, and I can plug it into the desk, we have our rig built, and I got control because my patch is right. So, definitely know how to patch an address, um, and understand how to uh, organize that. Really make sure you know how to organize, or you at least you know the standard way that most people organize their their patch. Um, like, is it truss or fixture type, blah, 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 blah. So make sure you know, if you're patching for somebody, you know how they like it set up. Especially for someone who designs for you, like if you're working for a designer and you're his operator or your programmer, it's definitely worthwhile to really understand their programming language and their workflow and how they make queue stacks and how they do things. That way when you're working for them or you're making their patch for them or whatever, you know how they like it. So that way when they're out, they plug it in, they see your work, your patch, and it's exactly how they like it, they'll use you every time. So definitely, definitely know how to patch an address. Just know the console. Just know the console. Next one, number four, making lights move. The most basic function you should be able to accomplish is to move your fixtures from point A to point B using a repeatable method. And repeatable method is a very important thing because if it's repeatable, you can get to it quickly and you can change it quickly, which is exactly what you want. Programming is all about speed. So if you if you really want to organize your workflow in your desk with... Uh, usability, and speed in mind. So making lights move, point A to point B. Yeah, Generally, this requires two cues or steps of a chase, one with fixtures in position A and the other with fixture in position B. I'm sure we all know how to do that. Then crossfading between the two cues, the fixtures will move at the selected crossfade speed. And, you can, and then apply these same procedures to other parameters of your fixtures. So yeah, once you kind of point A to point B, you can start adding other stuff. You can do the same thing with dimming effects, color effects, blah, 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 blah. You name it put it in your Q stack. Speaking of Q stacks, you'll hear you'll often hear older dudes complaining about, oh, these young whippersnappers, they don't know what it what it takes to make a, a thirty step chase or something like that. <laughs> you know, they're all about they're like, oh, they rely on the effects engine too much, which I will concede I say that a lot of people maybe probably do rely on the effects engine too much. Personally, I find the old style of programming uh in a QStack stack to be a lot simpler uh in terms of like i i don't like to overcomplicate my program because i know a lot of guys whose program style is like full on macro heavy as crazy as possible you want to make it as as you know as complicated as possible so you can you know make it the show as crazy as possible want as much options as you can in your programming let's say let's say you you had a busking show or something uh, but I have personally seen people, that, that's kind of can be a pitfall because that can, one, it's really complicated, obviously, that in itself is a problem, especially if the gig that you're doing isn't necessarily required to be that complicated. And if your show file is that crazy complicated, it's really unnecessary. Well, let's say I'm going to do a small corporate gig and all I need to do is go in, program my color palettes, make a few looks, make a few changeovers, you know. Small Q stacks, you know, why Why do I need to have a show that, you know, one queue triggers like 10 different macros to do a bunch of crazy stuff. You know, unnecessary and dangerous because I have seen, uh, I was not the LD that day, but one of our guys uh, does program like that. He's a wicked good programmer. It's awesome. Um, definitely respect and it's cool don't get me wrong, it's awesome. I love the complicated technical programming stuff. I just try not to, I I just don't do it because, you know, you really got to know your stuff because stuff, you know, stuff can happen, especially with uh, really heavy, you know, complicated show files can kind of bog down the machine. But it was, uh, he was running a show and I think it was because he programmed on a newer software version and we had not updated our, our MA2 yet. So he technically, his show file crashed the board probably because it was one of his macros or something, or something in there between the update and, you know, the, the crazy. And it, this was his fresh show file, so he had just, you know, reprogrammed it and made it even crazier than the last one, and it crashed the console. Uh, so definitely something to think about. And I've heard, you know, more experienced programmers talk about how, you know, don't be like that because that can cause you problems and you d- unnecessary problems. So I've definitely taking the advice to, you know, while that stuff is respectable and really cool, and you should, you know, you should want to know how to do that. And maybe even you should know how to do that because that's knowing the console. But really, as an automated lighting programmer, it, what I think he's trying to say is that just get the job done and get the job done right. Um, I'm kind of went on a tangent here about programming, but that's just something I thought of and I thought, you know, I'd share with you guys. Um, see what you think about it or maybe something you thought of in your programming or whatever. Um, but just my kind of two cents on on that kind of thing. Let's move on to number five, which is long hours and late nights. Our industry often gives a lighting team the late night shift, so you must be prepared to spend many long nights at the console. Knowing how to prepare your body and mind for hours of starting at one canvas while helping to create multiple paintings is essential. Me, I don't have a problem with that stuff. I love staying up late. Uh, so, the, in that aspect, doesn't really affect me too much. But you will be working long hours, and you will be working late nights, like you'll be working entire days sometimes. So, definitely, uh, definitely be prepared to, to get your ass kicked. Because there'll be some days where you'll be working 18 hours, maybe even no breaks, or stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, so just be prepared to bust your ass, even if you're working at a console. Um, Me personally, I really like the idea or like really late night, let's say you're in a theater or a ballroom or a corporate space or a venue and you're programming something, it's super late at night, it's just you, maybe you and a designer, you and another guy or a friend or something, and you're just in there at night, you know, maybe drinking some chamomile tea and you're just sitting there programming. I think that sounds super relaxing and therapeutic and awesome because I enjoy it. I enjoy programming, so to me that sounds awesome. (laughs) So long hours, late nights, sitting at a desk, that's uh, my cup of tea any day, any day of the week. Then number six, subtractive versus additive color mixing. Definitely want to know the difference here. This is what he says. The most common color mixing in traditional moving lights uses three graduated dichroic filters, cyan, magenta, and yellow. By combining the three, you can create millions of colors. And that's called Subtractive Color Mixing because technically you are removing or filtering out certain wavelengths of light. Instead of adding color, you're you're removing wavelengths to get the color that you want. And that's CMY, Subtractive Color Mixing. And then uh, the other kind is RGB, which is technically um, additive. So most... Light-emitting diodes or LEDs fixtures use additive color mixing by combining red, green, and blue sources. Uh, But some some RGB fixtures will have RGBW, um, give you a white channel or its own amber channel, or even... uh, I know Philips Hue. I have Philips Hue in my entire house. I know that I'm pretty sure they mix with uh, lime green and an amber instead of straight green um, and blue or red or something. So they... You can get a lot uh better color mixing with if you have a lime for example, which I didn't know about until fairly recently. So kind of cool. But I'm pretty sure Philips you do use a lime to color mix, which gives them some really good rich colors and 16 million colors to choose from. But yeah, definitely know the difference um, when it comes to color mixing, especially between fixtures, because you can kind of tie that into knowing your fixtures as well. Um, just for color mixing. Because RGB might look a lot different than the CMY fixture. Uh, Some consoles I know you can calibrate them so that your color mixing is the same across, you know, CMY, RGB, or color flag, or color wheel fixtures or something. There's ways you can do it, but definitely something to keep note of is color theory, obviously. Because, you know, half of what we do is color. So, half of what we do. Literally everything we do is based around color. Um, Color is basically all we do. Uh... It's like one of the most important parts of lighting is color. Um, So there's my phone again. Uh, All right, number seven. This is tracking. This is definitely an important one because I had trouble with this uh, when I was a newbie programming. Number seven tracking. Conventional lighting desks commonly record all values for all channels into uh, every queue. Moving light consoles make use of tracking by recording only channels with changed values in each queue. This significantly reduces the amount of data in each queue and enables many tricks for dynamic programming and playback. So you're really going to want to pay attention to tracking when you're programming queue stacks on like an MA2, for example, or like moving lights when you're doing a lot of stuff because basically let's say you make a queue with a color chase in it. If you don't stomp that or end the effect in that cue and you have tracking on, it will track into the next cue. So let's say you change the position. It'll change the position, but it will carry over the uh, the color chase that you had from the last one. So if you don't want it to do the color chase in the next cue, you got to make sure you stomp it from the cue. That way it doesn't track over into uh, your next cue. Basically, my advice on this is just really... Um, Like I was saying before, you really want to have solid, good programming workflow, so really make sure you pay attention to tracking and what you want and what you do not want tracked into your next queue because it can really screw up your your queue stacks if you don't pay attention to tracking. Uh, So definitely know about tracking. Protect the data. This is number eight. This is a very important one, which is one that I've recently been really trying to uh, be better at. This is protect the data. A good programmer will protect the data in the console with his or her life. <laughs> yes, a bit dramatic, but your life. That, that show is your life. Protect it as such. <laughs> a good programmer will protect the data in the console with his or her life. You are hired to enter the data into the console and to see that it remains there and can be recalled at all times. Proper saving routines are essential, as well as uh, requiring an uninterruptible power supply and a dedicated power source. If something goes wrong and all data is lost, you have no options for recovery, then you're the only one to blame. So yeah, protect that data, that USB with your life. Save your show on like five different USBs. Um, Save it on your computer. Save it on your laptop. Save it at home. Have someone else save it on their flash drives. You want to make sure that if anything happens to to your data or your show, you have another way to get it back. Because think about it. Let's say, what if you're working for a huge A-list or artist, and right before the show, the console crashes, and you didn't save your show, and you made all these changes. You didn't save your show. You didn't save it onto another USB. Let's say your USB breaks and on the load, and it gets crushed by a road case, and that's your only USB, and you didn't save the show on the console or your computer. Well, damn you're done for. So protect the data. Save it a million times. Um, name your show files appropriately. Uh, have a bunch of flash drives. But this is definitely something that I've been trying to do a lot more. Because um, I remember one time I thought I had saved a show file and I didn't, and I wanted to program at home, but I couldn't because I didn't uh, fully save it onto my uh, my flash drive. All of them. So definitely look into getting a bulk flash drives and save your show. Save your show like it's your damn life. (laughs) Next, number nine, which is a very important one, if not the most important in my opinion. Um, And I would probably say that people have the most trouble or, or this is the one that I think people should take really deeply to heart including myself, is how to admit your faults. If a lighting designer asks you for a particular effect or look and you are unsure of how to create it, admit it. Do not tell the LD that it is not possible. Either find a way to make it happen or tell him or her you do not know how to do it. And he goes on to give an example of one LD who asked the programmer for a specific thing and the programmer says, oh, I can't do that. It can't do that. So he said, like, literally the equipment was incapable or incapable of doing that. But the designer had known that that's not the case because the programmer he had previously worked with had done it. So, obviously, you know, that makes you look bad. If if another program had done it and you say that you literally can't do it, well, then that designer probably not going to want to work with you. So always admit your fault. And I always tell this, this is kind of what I like to tell people, is there's always someone that knows more than you, and as long as you respect that, you'll be good. I kind of operate from a position that everybody knows more than me, (laughs) you know. I want to learn as much as possible and uh so the best way to do that is to act like i don't know anything so uh definitely yeah put your ego aside because i feel like this industry because we work with a lot of big artists and because it's such a cool thing lighting design a lot of guys get a big head and act like they're hot shit because you know Ooh, I'm a lighting designer, or like a lot of guys who don't even do any programming or lighting design. Is that they'll they'll really try to make people think that they that that they're designing or programming or touring or whatever. Uh, like a lot of guys will will you know post about it, but then not put in the work to do it. Um, and I think that makes you look bad. So uh, I think it's really important for people to be humble and. Uh, you know, like I said, respect that. There's always going to be people that know more than you. And there's nothing worse than getting caught in a lie of saying you know how to do something when you actually don't. And then you don't come through with it. Who would want to work with you again after that? So, uh, you know, there, there's a limit to fake it till you make it. I always like to say fake it till you make it Uh, does not mean, you know, you do something you have no idea how to do. Fake it till you make it means, you know, you technically have the background knowledge... You just have to go in and do it. Uh, so definitely, that's kind of how I interpret number nine: how to admit your faults. Uh, at least that's how I think he he's kind of what he's saying, and just kind of my my two cents because, um, you know, I, I feel like people just have you know the tendency or that they just you, the egos. People have egos, you know and nothing's more annoying than you know some kid who's coming in and acts like he knows everything, you know. Like what well, what if I, you know, walked into Broken Bowl and acted like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I've never touched a console before, but yeah, I, well, you know, makes you look bad and people don't want to teach people that act like they know everything. So, just be super humble and respectful. Again, there's always people that know more than you and those are the people that you want to learn from the most. So, uh, be humble eh admit your faults, you know. Admit when you're wrong, admit when you don't know something, and you'll be good to go cuz it's better to admit that you don't know something and learn how to do it than to say you know how to do something when you don't know how to do it and then you get in trouble or your reputation gets ruined or people don't want to work with you anymore. So, just be home, guys. Uh but wait, there's more. Just kidding. Uh number 10, who to call. This is the last one. Write down the support phone numbers for all the lighting manufacturers and keep this list with you at all times. Then when a problem develops or when you need to know how to do something, call for assistance. Now, this applies to not just manufacturers, but I would also say get yourself a mentor or get yourself a guy who really knows his stuff that you can call when you have a pinch. My person for that is Ben. He's uh, our head of lighting at Broken Bowl. Um, He's an MA guru. Uh, an amazing programmer, super awesome guy. Uh, Most of what I know about lighting is from him, (laughs) at least when it comes to programming and stuff like that. So definitely you know, get a support system of of people who you can call when you're in a pinch. Because a lot of the times, man, even on these tours, guys will be like, oh, how do I do this? And obviously the house guys don't know everything. So you really want to have someone to call, be it a manufacturer or another LD or programmer or, you know, uh, one of these lighting companies or gear companies that you need to get some information from. Definitely good to have a good base of people to uh, call when you literally don't know what you're doing or you need help. So yeah, that was uh that was the 10 things that every automated lighting programmer should know from the Automated Lighting Programmer's Handbook by Brad Schiller. So again, definitely recommend that uh, if you're, an aspiring lighting professional, a current lighting professional, or a seasoned lighting professional. All of these books, or both of these books, are definitely worth uh, reading. So that's The Automated Lighting Programmer's Handbook by Brad Schiller, 3rd edition. And then I have Electricity for the Entertainment Electrician and Technician by Richard Kadina. Definitely worth checking these out. I was recommend these by other professionals, so I'm recommending them to you now. Go get your learn on. Become quality, uh, qualified technicians. Have good workflow. You know, let's all be the best we can be, the best automated lighting programmer you can be. And it's cool to read a book. All right, so uh, let's move on to uh, the questions. The last segment, always end with the questions. This actually might end up being the longest episode I've done. We're at forty-seven minutes right now. Uh, we probably might get to an hour. Uh, that'd be cool. I, I know people were uh, saying that they would like to have it be a little bit longer, so uh, hopefully you guys like that, like the length of this episode. So, some of these questions I kind of had already answered earlier, which is uh, color theory, um, subtractive versus additive, CMY versus RGB uh, color choice. So, when designing, and I haven't done too much like real design work, um, I'm more of an operator right now, so I'm not necessarily coming from a place of experience, but when it comes to color, at least in theater, theater's more about like conveying a story with light than than concert lighting. So when lighting for theater, obviously the first thing you want to think of is seeing the actors. So you make sure you have your good white um, front wash so you can see the actors. Um and the rest is really just depends on the story and your artistic direction. But again, I don't do theater. So I'm gonna talk about concert lighting. So or a corporate event, technically too, you could throw that under the umbrella. So basically when I'm listening to a song or I'm running lights for a band or something, obviously colour is all about emotion and mood. So and texture I guess technically too. Um, But color conveys a mood to the human psyche. So, you know, really cool whites are going to promote, you know, work and being awake. Really warm whites are easier on the eyes and might promote relaxation. Blue can be a sad color, can be somber. Um, Red can mean evil or it can mean love depending on the scene. It also changes um, depending on culture uh what colors mean what but generally uh each color kind of is associated with its own emotion so let's say it's a sad song i might pick blue like a, a color palette with a lot of blues in it um but again i haven't done much design work when it comes to actually designing a rig or or a show like that but i i do wonder i'll have to ask somebody and uh maybe interview somebody, have them on the podcast to kind of explain their artistic direction uh, or their process when they're designing a show and and how they pick color. But, you know, if you know color theory, you know what colors go with look good with each other. But aside from that, aside from what looks cool, color's all about mood. So when when I'm running a show and I'm listening to the song or if I know a song and it sounds kind of somber or the subject material's somber... You know, maybe I'll pick a blue, but a lot of the time, to me, a, a song will kind of have a, a color feel to it. Like, when I listen to it, there's certain colors that I think of, and then I'll I'll usually either go with that or, or work around that. Um, so, you know, listen to the songs and kind of feel it, and then, you know, pick colors based off of that. And then you usually it'll give you kind of like a feeling or a general idea of like, oh, you know, this feels like a red, this song feels like a blue song, oh, this song feels like a kind of fiery, so I'll do red, orange, and yellows, or, you know, whatever. Whatever it is. So that's kind of like color theory and picking color. um It's all about mood, like I said. And just look, what, uh, with concert lighting, a lot of times it's probably just what looks cool. Because it's not theater. <laughs> um... The next one is someone had asked me uh, lighting people versus just making it look cool. And really, the only difference between that is when you're lighting people, uh, you want to make sure, obviously, you know, the main job of a lighting person is so you can see the action, see the people that are on stage. So as long as you can see the people, that kind of aspect is covered. But again, you can work with that too. You can do backlighting. You can do side lighting. If you really want to light the body. Like if you want to highlight the body for like a dance show. You're going to want to use a lot of side light. Um, and not so much front light. Honestly I think side light looks better anyways. I don't like front light. Uh, I like colored front light. But I, I don't like how front light can kind of wash out. The rest of the lights on stage, so you can't see as much as of uh, the, the the structures or, or you know you get what I mean. You've washed the stage in white, so you can see the actors. Some of the colors get washed out and it doesn't look as cool. So I I like to use either very focused uh, front light, colored front light, or no front light at all, um, and maybe just use side light. Like for example, for the national tour, uh, we didn't have any front light, from what. Uh, because we had three flying trusses and a floor package, and then it was just uh, GLP impressions on the side is kind of what was used to light the band. Because I think lighting lighting a band from the side is a lot better because it's a little bit more dramatic. You're lighting their body. You're not seeing, you know, exactly their face. It gives them a little bit of, uh, like, it just looks cool. It looks more artistic. It looks more intentional when it's lit from the side as opposed to just straight on front light. Um, so, you know, there's kind of, you can kind of, it's a little bit flexible with, with how you light people um, as long as you can see them. But another thing to take into account is when you're lighting people is if it's being filmed, if it's an iMag show, then you really have to pay attention to to lighting people in front light. Then you really want to make sure you know what the color temperature of your front light is so that the people filming can color correct um, you kind of working along hand-in-hand with video, but that's a very important thing. iMag would fall under the jurisdiction of a lighting designer, and you should definitely know uh, the color temperature of your front light, or at least a general idea that you can give a photographer. Um, so definitely, and that's something that I recently kind of thought about because I, I had a photographer ask me, oh, what, what color temperature is your front light? And I was like, oh, I don't really have that information in front of me. The console's not going to tell me that. Um, but I, I kind of gave her a general uh, idea of what it was, and it was like 35, it was like three 3,000 or something like that. I don't remember what it was, but I kind of gave her a general idea so she could color correct um, or white balance or whatever whatever you photographers do, um, white balance or color correct the front light so that it looks the best for IMAG. So that's something to really pay attention to when you're lighting people for uh, television or movies or anything that's being filmed and you want. You want to look really good on camera. Definitely pay attention to that. Um, And if you're just making it look look cool, just make it look cool. You don't have to worry about that stuff. (laughs) Uh, And then someone was wondering about artistic vision of the artist versus like the designer. And like I said before, I haven't done any extensive design work. I'm still young. I haven't really quite got to that level of career yet. (laughs) Someday, when I get there, I'll let you know. Uh, but at least from watching interviews and hearing professionals talk about it, I'll use uh, the 1975 as an example. The 1975, their lead singer Matty Healy, he is very involved uh, with the design process, from what I've heard. His designer is Tobias Rylander. Um, so two very strong artistic personalities who work together, and they, they, you know, in my opinion, they have some of the coolest uh, looking shows around right now. So in that aspect, you know, sometimes it's a straight-up collaboration. But I know, for example, an Elton John show, I was watching an interview with one, his designer at the time. I don't remember his name. But basically he was like, oh, Elton John, you know, what, do you, what what kind of production do you want? Like, what are your ideas? And Elton John was like, oh, I don't care. You do whatever you want. I hired you to design. So sometimes an artist might want to work with you Sometimes an artist will just give you complete creative freedom and to let you do your thing as a professional designer. Or some artists will have complete control over their their show and you just have to do exactly what they want, how they want it. Um, and that's just what you have to do. At the end of the day, that's kind of what you have to do anyways. But really, artist input and uh, design between the artist and the designer really just depends on how the artist is. Um, and how they handle their productions. I personally think a setup like the 1970 Hive has, where it's a collaborative effort, because you have the designers who know the technical aspects and know how to lighting design, but then you have the musicians who wrote the music, and they know exactly the kind of message that they're trying to portray or the the whole feel of the song. They know that more than anybody because they wrote it. So I think uh, the best productions probably are a collab, or where the artists and the designers work really closely with each other um, and have good creative freedom and bounce ideas off each other, um, I think that's a good recipe for some of the best productions, like the 1975's productions, like the last one they did and the new one they're doing. Uh, that's kind of my take on that. But again, I haven't done much design work. uh haven't gotten to that part of my career yet. Hopefully, uh, hopefully in the future I get to do a lot of design, because that's something I really am interested in. All right, so that's it for episode four of Text in the City. I hope you guys enjoyed it. This was a little bit of a longer one. We're almost at an hour, um, so uh, I hope that's a good length for you guys. Uh, I hope it's not too long, not too short, just right around an hour. I'll I'll probably try to keep them um, keep the episodes at about an hour, forty five minutes to an hour is kind of my my goal. Um, so let me know let me know what you think about that. Um, thanks for listening. Whoever you are, hopefully we'll gain more listeners. Hopefully a lot of this information is uh, really useful or interesting to you, because uh, that's kind of why I wanted to do it. was to give people this information and also to give myself the information. And it gives me an excuse to really dive deep into my craft and uh, you know learn stuff and uh, study and you know read books. So uh, hopefully it inspires you to do the same. But uh, yeah, so that was episode four of Techs in the City. I will see you on the next one. Uh, Again, we're on Spotify, we're on iTunes, we're on SoundCloud, uh, all at Techs in the City. You should be easy to find uh, on all those streaming services. So uh, that's that. Again, this is your host, Noah. Thanks for listening. This has been Techs in the City, and I will see you on the next one.